0: Hello, and welcome to Benio Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. How best should we think about diet and obesity? On this episode, I speak to neuroscientist Stephen Guyonet. We speak on competing models for obesity, how he thinks about diet, and why I find exercise challenging. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe, as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey everyone, I'm pleased to be speaking to Stefan Guyenet. Stefan completed a PhD in neuroscience, then went on to study the neuroscience of obesity and eating behavior as a postdoc. He's also been involved with GiveWell and Open Philanthropy. And in 2017, he wrote the book, The Hungry Brain. Stefan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Ben. So my reading of the obesity science debates is that there are broadly two competing models today one based around a model of energy balance with the brain as one of the main central controllers, and one model which has evolved, and I'm going to just say it very simplistically, but it's based more around the kind of insulin carbohydrate pathway, the carbohydrate insulin model, which emphasizes the role of insulin from glycemic load inputs. And I know that the latest iteration has changed in a few more pathways to it, but it's really put kind of insulin at, at the center. I think your book argues for the importance of the brain and also a kind of genetic environment complex. Uh, can you tell me why you think uh, what you think fits the data better? And if you'd like to add anything to my simplistic characterizations of the two models?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'll start off just by um, taking a step back and saying that I don't think in reality this is the, the situation is an epic struggle between two, two models. Um, I think that that's how it is perceived because there are um, vocal high profile people representing these two models and debating each other. Um, and so that, that's how it appears to the public. And also I think to a large extent within the scientific community. But I think um, that actually the situation is more complex with various versions of various models all competing with one another. But I would say that the um, the energy balance model, which is the one that um, I guess Kevin Hall has been, at least in, in recent debates, has been kind of um, defending, arguing in favor of, um, that is, I would say like the descendant of brain-based models that have existed for over a hundred years. Um, the carbohydrate insulin model has, I I think if you, I think you could find roots of it that, uh, long ago, but I think that, you know, we didn't even know what insulin was, or I think just about a hundred years ago is when we discovered when, when insulin was. Um, and so I think there were some antecedents of that model that go back a ways, but in terms of its modern incarnation, that didn't really start till the 21st century. So um, I think that, um, yeah, so that's kind of a little bit of background on those two models. So I'm, I'm a brain guy, I'm a neuroscientist. And so I'm more, I'm much more in favor of the, what's called the energy balance model, which I think is kind of an unfortunate name. Um, And I've talked to Kevin Hall about this, I think, I mean, Kevin is the one who landed on that name. Him and and John Speakman. I that's not necessarily what other people in the field would call it. Um, it didn't even really have a name prior to this debate. Um, but it's. I think. I think the key thing is um, that the reason why it's called the energy balance model is that energy balance is thought to be a causal influence on body fatness in the development of of common obesity. So in other words, to put that a different way, eating more calories is a cause of elevated body fatness. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I, I think when people hear that, they think, oh, eat less, move more. It's just this passive thing where you happen to eat more calories and you gain fat. It's not really like that because how many calories you eat is, is a regulated process. It's something that happens in response to how your brain is constructed to, um, you know, the signals that your brain is getting from inside the body, from the environment. Um, so it's not just like this, you know, spreadsheet model where we're consciously choosing how, how much to eat and how much to expend. Um, and so, and so that's, um, that's the general idea with the energy balance model. It's the brain is regulating calorie intake and body fatness and that um, energy balance that the brain is determining. So the calories in and the calories out is the major influence on body fatness. Whereas the carbohydrate insulin model says, well, you guys got it backwards. It's actually the calorie, the elevated calorie intake is actually a result of the fattening process. So you have this um, insulin signaling, uh, that is causing. Um, so the original model was you have too much insulin causes your fat cells to suck up too much fat and other metabolites from your blood that then makes you hungry and you start eating more and you might start burning less calories. And, um, now it's more complicated. They're like, maybe various aspects of insulin signaling are involved, but the general idea is still that the causality with calorie intake is reversed. So elevated calorie intake and obesity is not the cause, it's the consequence of the fattening process. So that's, that's what they would argue. Um, so, I mean, my position is that the energy balance model is a much better fit for the evidence. But that said, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. And I think, you know, it depends on where it depends on what version of the carbohydrate insulin model you are defending. So if the idea is this is the cause of common obesity, that insulin and fast adjusting carbohydrates are the cause of common obesity. I think that's very hard to defend based on current evidence. I think there's quite a bit of evidence suggesting that's probably not the case. But if you want to say, okay, you know, if we're looking at variation in body weight in the general population between individuals, and we want to say that this mechanism explains 10% of it, then I think that's not an unreasonable thing to, to suppose. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a sense of why I think the brain-based model is the energy balance model is, is better supported. Um, There's a, a, first of all, a huge amount of research going back 180 years since the first autopsy, um, autopsy discovered a person with extreme obesity who had a tumor in their hypothalamus in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. An enormous amount of evidence has accumulated implicating uh, the brain and certain brain acting hormones in body fat regulation and the the ringleader hormone is called leptin and we've known this for a long time leptin was identified in 1994 we know a lot about the brain circuits that it's acting on how it works so not only do we know that the brain is the only organ in the body that we know of that regulates body fatness um, but we also know a lot about how the system works so it's not like Oh, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. This is a reasonably well-characterized biological system that regulates body fatness, and the only one we know of is located in the brain. So, I mean, that's that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece is the genetics. So, body fatness is strongly influenced by genetics. Um, if you look at studies, twin studies, for example, that can determine how much of differences in body fatness between individuals are due to genes versus environment so nature versus nurture you see in modern affluent settings it's about 75 percent genes so body fatness has a very strong genetic influence on it and um we have a lot of information on what the genes are that are determining that in the general population so Just people, you know, everyday people, people, you know, living their everyday lives, what are the genes that are causing some of them to be fatter than, than others? What are the genetic differences? We know a lot, what a lot of those differences are, and they are overwhelmingly in genes that relate to brain function. So, you know, if we thought that insulin and fat cells were the central mechanism, they should be all about insulin and fat cells. Cause you know, when you do this type of study, these genetic studies on height, you see, you know, genes related to growth of the skeletal system and connective tissue. When you do it on diabetes, you see genes related to the pancreas and insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity. Like these studies really do seem good at getting at what the fundamental mechanism is. And in obesity, what you see is it's primarily genes that relate to how the brain is constructed and how it operates and so um and in fact the genetics is so enriched for the brain that it is similarly enriched to conditions like psychiatric conditions and educational attainment and iq so things that we know are all about the brain like schizophrenia depression uh intelligence if you look at the degree of enrichment for brain-related genes for obesity, it is similar to those, those other conditions. So um, so it, it's all about, not all about, I shouldn't say all about. It's a lot about, it seems to be primarily about how your brain operates. And um, I wanna specify here, because a lot of people, when they hear this, they kind of think, oh, if it's the brain, that means it's my fault. You know, that means that I'm just making bad choices. That's what they're saying about me. Um, But that's not actually true, because most of what the brain does is non-conscious. Most of what the brain does, you have no control over and no awareness of. There's only a small subset of the brain's activities that you even have conscious awareness over. So, there's all these brain modules that are generating outputs related to food intake and body fat regulation that you're not consciously controlling. So the the you, what you think of as yourself is not the entity that is controlling these things. Um, so- no,
0: I've, I've heard a lot of scientists actually call it uh, obesity a condition was, was more of a disease than a choice to try and sort of wait uh, to those that you don't have, you know, your environment can be so strong that you kind of actually, if you don't really press against it, you you end up doing a lot of things, like you say, unconsciously, because that's where, that's where the brain sits. Um, I was interested what we could learn maybe from um, hunter-gatherers or other types of people. I'm also kind of interested in what you might think with this intersection with some uh, longevity research, I guess. I'm interested in uh, the sort of long lived people in Okinawa and also some of these um, Italians in Sardinia. And there seems to be some intersection with diet, but genes seem to play uh, a major part. Do, would you reflect on any, on any of that data and what it might tell us about obesity and maybe even long life?
1: Yeah. So I'm not um, intimately familiar with the data on those cultures in particular, but I would say. Um, I would advise some degree of caution because it's hard to really know why those cultures are long-lived. We don't have controlled studies where we randomize cultures to diet A versus diet B. We don't have controlled studies where, you know, we're controlling for differences in genetics, which is something that you mentioned that I think is important, potentially important. Um, Or, you know, calorie restriction was thought to play a role in Okinawan longevity we don't have an intervention trial where we restricted some Okinawans and didn't restrict others. So it's like, is it the genetics? Is it the diet? Is it the amount of food, the type of food? Is it the social environment, which is one thing people have highlighted, you know, social connections? Um, I don't really know. I mean, all those are, those are all logical hypotheses. But I think it's it's challenging to disentangle all of those things in that type of a, a setting. So and you might need them all. Maybe, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, so in terms of the relationship between body fatness and and lifespan, though, I think there is some meat to dig into here, um, and that is. There um, there have been a number of studies that have been published over the last, I, I guess it's been going on for like 50 years, actually, if you go back to the beginning of it, um, suggesting that the relationship between body fatness and uh, health risks and mortality risk is not uh, what people would expect. So in other words, it's not as bad to have overweight or to have obesity than people thought um, I, I basically I don't believe that I think that is um, it's the data are coming to the wrong conclusion based on some limitations of the methods that are being used I think that's the most likely explanation um, I think that yeah this is referred to as the obesity paradox I don't know if this is something you or your audience have heard of but there are st- some studies suggesting that it's actually, from a m- mortality perspective, risk of overall risk of dying, it's better to be overweight or maybe even slightly obese. Um, but if you, if you start to dice those data up and you look at how people are changing in weight, what you find is that there's a group of people that have vastly elevated risk of death And that is people who used to have obesity or used to be overweight, and now are lean. And what's funny about that, not funny, but what's interesting about that is when you look in the literature on voluntary weight loss, so people who choose to lose weight through like diet or lifestyle or bariatric surgery, they have a reduced mortality risk. So it actually protects their health. So what I think is going on here is that most of those people that are losing weight in the data sets, that is not voluntary weight loss. That is unintentional weight loss due to some kind of underlying disease process. And so basically, what, ha- what ends up happening is it makes leanness look more dangerous than it really is because you have all these people that formerly had obesity that no longer do because they have cardiovascular disease or diabetes or cancer or or alzheimer's disease or some other kind of disease if you clear all that out and you analyze it based on maximum attained weight so the heaviest someone's ever been and then you look at the correlation between that and health outcomes it really sharpens the correlation and at that point you see a stronger relationship between body fatness and health risks and um one that is consistent with all the evidence we have suggesting that higher body fatness puts a person at higher risk of diseases that can harm you, like type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease, um, not to mention all the other things that may not be lethal, but still you don't want like uh orthopedic conditions that can really mess with your joints um, so.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. And you can see that with confounding, like call it generalized stress. Maybe you measure it by cortisol, but a lot of people who stress actually lose weight, but they're not healthy. They're actually at much risk of bad outcomes. They're losing weight, but stress is going to be your primary cause. And you can see that with sleep. We don't quite know sleep confounding because some people who sleep a lot less, a lot less, they're not healthy because they're sleeping less because of some other condition. If they didn't have that condition, they would, they would like to sleep more. So it's confounded in in the averages. I, I, I am interested what you do make of these, and you referred to it earlier about maybe there's 10% or 20% or, or some number who do respond to some of these different sort of diets, so these case studies of, of people who move on to, say, lower carb diets and then become lean. Is this a kind of fullness sort of satiety type effect where they're actually eating less calories because they're feeling more full or an interaction of genes and environment what do you think is happening with those sort of people and and is that the subset which kind of is explained by this carb insulin model even though actually it can fit within like you say it doesn't necessarily interfere with uh, an energy balance or at least a brain motivated one because um, you can you can do that I, I remember I for an experiment once um, I ate a bit of a, a slab of butter, and I felt really full, right? Which you could mm-hmm. ex- expect. And uh, I kind of feel the same after I have a, a, a miso soup. And I can kind of say that, you know, what I, I think long-term miso soup is probably going to be a, a better balance for me than only eating slabs of butter. But I could see, like, some people, you need a slab of butter. They may not be very calorie dense, but if you only eat one slab a day and you're feeling really full, that might work. And I know there's some sort of some evidence for that. And Uh, And I do think, uh, you know, I think you might have even said it uh, in a a different podcast or written it. If if we go back 100, 150 years or 200 years, a lot of people today may not be or be so overweight because of the environment and and the kind of food sources we had. You wouldn't easily have access to that much butter. Butter was expensive and was a luxury uh, food item, um, you know, if you go back, depending on on which culture you're in. So I'd be interested in in what you make of that and whether there is a, a reconciliation between some of these models. Uh, more so than what exactly then the kind of public debates would make it seem like.
1: Yeah, so my view is the the model that I think is not correct is the idea that carbs and insulin are the primary cause of common obesity, the primary cause of common obesity. I'm not as confident that it, that, that mechanism does not play a role in weight loss on, on low carb diets. So if someone reduces carbohydrate greatly, is it possible that that reduction in insulin actually is playing some role? I don't think that's been ruled out. I don't think it's been well supported either, but I think that's still on the table as a possibility as a contributor. Um, But I think, you know, an observation that we have to account for is the fact that low fat diets that are hydrate also cause weight loss. And if you look um, at the impacts of low-carb and low-fat diets, they're actually very similar. And what I mean by that, I'm I'm talking qualitatively here, but also to some degree quantitatively, um, what you see is that even if you don't tell someone to eat fewer calories, if you just ask them to eat a different type of food, so a low-carb diet or a low-fat diet, they will spontaneously start eating fewer calories. Several hundred calories a day less, often up to like 500 calories a day less, uh, just spontaneously based on they're still just eating to their appetite, but they just want to eat less. And so I think, you know, we have to have some kind of explanation that covers both of these phenomena. The fact that people will comfortably, their, their eating drive goes down at either end of the macronutrient extreme, and then their body fatness goes down as well. And if you look out at six or or 12 months in meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials, which are studies that bring together kind of the the highest level of evidence we have, you see, depending on the the meta-analysis, maybe um, weight loss at 12 months is the same between low carb and low fat, or maybe there's a small edge to low carb, um, but it's pretty similar. It's surprisingly similar. And so we need to have some kind of way of explaining why both of these effects happen on either end of the macronutrient spectrum. So if you have a hypothesis that is that carbs are the only thing that matters, and you know more carbs is fattening and less carbs is slimming, that doesn't explain both ends of that of that spectrum. So you have to have an explanation that is able to to accommodate both of those observations. And so what are some explanations that can accommodate both of those observations? Um, One that I'm particularly fond of is the fact that the um, in terms of how the brain responds motivationally to food in terms of cravings and the potential to become addicted to food, that most of the action really happens when you combine carbohydrate and fat together. So the foods that people report, um, most often having strong cravings toward and having addiction, like eating behaviors toward the, the most common problem foods are almost all combinations of carbohydrate and fat. So things like pizza and chips and fries and candy, like chocolate, chocolate's actually the number one and, um, and I don't think that's a surprise, because not only does that have carbohydrate and fat, it also has a habit-forming substance in it called diabromine, a habit-forming drug, I should say. Um, and so I think all of this points in the direction of dopamine and eating drive, like uh, reward food reward drive be, being a major player here. So I think essentially, your brain finds Delicious, calorie-dense combinations of carbs and fat to be highly desirable on some kind of um, non-conscious or you know minimally conscious level. That's just like your gut preference, and when you can't get those things, your brain's just not as driven to eat, and that happens on both ends of the spectrum. So that's that's one possible explanation. I don't think we have strong evidence that that is the cause either. That is one possible explanation. There's also the fact that low carb and low fat diets both cut out these foods that we kind of widely recognize to be problematic, the calorie dense, you know, whether it's the actual dopamine or something else about those foods, that's the problem. I think most people recognize that things like pizza and, uh, you know, fried foods and sugar, sweetened beverages are problematic cake cookies, ice cream, um, and both ends of the spectrum cut out those types of foods. So
0: super processed, easy to eat, very stimulating foods, that sort of cluster. I mean, I guess some are not always super processed, but there, there tends to be those sort of qualities to them. I think it's interesting your parallels with addiction because you can get some of these attenuation effects. So for instance when you have people end of life on morphine actually you can you can move their beds into different places or change their uh, drug slightly so it's still a painkiller or move and actually they can start on a much lower dose before it has to go back because of that sort of attenuation effect and so like you say that actually uh, single you know pure carb or pure fat say at, at the extreme ends are, are not you kind of kind of reset between uh, between that. Uh, I think probably very hard to prove one way or the other, uh, but I do think that's quite interesting. Um, one thing on that, was that, I guess this is a little bit more tangential, but on the brain things, I know quite a few years ago there was some research into uh, cannabinoids or anti-cannabinoids because there's this anecdotal thing that you take uh, cannabis type things and you kind of get munchies and they were so sort of looking at anti-cannabinoids and actually did seem to have an impact Uh, There was some drug development there, which has actually stopped because there was a sort of signal on other mental orders like suicide and mental things. So it wasn't a good thing and not surprising if you're messing with the brain that you might have these types of things, but would maybe lend some evidence uh, towards that. Do you have any views on on those or that interaction with that uh, uh, models of addiction or at least like the cannabinoid and other sort of uh, hunger processes within the brain?
1: Yeah. I mean, so yeah, like you said, I mean, I, th- I think you, you covered a lot of it right there, but, uh, the CB one receptor cannabinoid type one receptor is the primary receptor for THC, which is the psychoactive compound, the primary psychoactive compound in, in marijuana. And, um, and it tends to increase people's food intake and their, um, eating drive, they're eating pleasure. And if you, um, do the reverse of that, so you have a, what's called an inverse agonist, which kind of, um, does the opposite of THC, you get kind of the opposite effect on food intake and you get a reduction in, in body fatness. And so this was the drug Romanobant is the name of the drug that was, that was developed. And, um, it was, it was an okay drug. It wasn't great. It um, caused—I'm trying to remember exactly how much weight loss it caused. Something in the in the neighborhood of five percent in people with obesity, which would it's be much better than
0: rats, unfortunately. But yeah, there was some maybe five percent in humans.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, so five percent just to give you a sense of where how that compares with other things. Um, that is kind of like on the upper end of what you would see from diet and lifestyle interventions, um, diet and lifestyle interventions by and large are not as effective as we would like them to be against obesity and especially over the long run. So not a very impressive effect. Um, also to compare that to the best drugs that we have available now, which are the GLP one receptor agonists, like semaglutide, UIGAV, um, the effect size was something like a third or a quarter of, of what we have now. So, yeah. And, and as you said, there was a pretty strong signal for psychiatric disease. So suicidal ideation, um, and other psychiatric diseases were pretty strongly increased by that drug. And, um, there was also some signal, it was not statistically significant, but there was some signal for actual increase in completed suicides in the, the largest trial of this, of this drug. So it was briefly approved by the um, uh, European, I'm trying to remember what the name is, the, the European EMA, drug. Aid. But yes, yes. Thank you, EMA. And uh, it was briefly approved. It never was approved by the US Food and Drug uh, Administration. And um, but it was withdrawn shortly after approval due to the concerns that you mentioned. And it, it kind of makes sense thinking
0: back of it again anecdotally, if uh cannabis kind of makes you happy and eat more, well the the reverse effect well, you're eating less, but you might well be unhappy right. as well. Which I, I kind of think like if I was developing that from early, I would have maybe thought about that earlier. But
1: may, maybe that doesn't obviously there's different mechanisms. I think there was some wishful thinking. Yeah. And I, I don't know, maybe this is hindsight bias, like me thinking it was more obvious than it was, but the trials, this is what I heard from the experts when I when I spoke to people about this. The trials were designed to exclude people with psychiatric disease yeah, or at higher just- risk of psychiatric disease. And so essentially they didn't see much, but then once it started going out more to the general public, um, they started to see more of a signal there. So um, I think that's just kind of a lesson in how sometimes the, the drug trials can be mostly well-designed, but if you're not really, really careful about exactly how you're designing those tra- trials, who is involved, um, you know, who the patients are, I think you can end up with results, unfortunately, that are, that are misleading. Yeah.
0: And I think also, because we don't have very good um... Depression, suicide models in in animals, right? Um, you know, suicidal rats are not the kind of thing you can well study. So it's not a signal you would very easily see even depressed rats. You you can't uh, you can't account for it for the same until you put it in into humans in that in that general population. Um, so I'm going to ask about uh, GLP ones because I think that's really uh, interesting. Uh, but maybe uh, as a route into that, uh, I'd be intrigued and in what you make about also the intersection with models of inflammation, and particularly models of inflammation and dementia, uh, because there are these kind of intriguing signals. And actually, you you had it quite a long way back with some anti-diabetes medicines, which might have been affecting obesity uh, a little bit, TCTs. Going quite way back, there's kind of been sort of interest in that. And then we've had these kind of large uh, registry trials, which you have to take with a big dose of salt, because they're not pre- uh, random trials and we're doing that now but you're, you're seeing these uh, effects particularly when you're getting it early that you're seeing less dementia or alzheimer's through that and then it, it does seem if the brain is a center and there's also kind of anti-inflammatory or there's inflammatory pathways effects which we do think so you know and leptin's a hormone and it's circulating and there do seem to be these effects that that might be uh, a true effect and i'm gonna i'm gonna leap in and, and see what of that because i'm also very intrigued by some of the uh, again, very small but, um, and not sort of consistent data, but on kind of intermittent fasting or fasting effects, again, but through an inflammatory pathway, or, although it can also maybe affect weight or, or not. Uh, and I know, for instance, that the CEO, the chief executive of um, a Swiss pharmaceutical company actually does intermittent fasting himself, even though he's got no skin in the game in, in obesity drugs. But it's kind of intriguing that there is there is something there. Uh, which then actually will circle us back to GLP-1s. But i was just intrigued uh, by what you might think about this and what the, what the neuroscience behind what might be happening here is.
1: Yeah. So there was a paper published on this recently that really raised my eyebrows. Um, and it reports that in both um, randomized controlled trials, which is a, a high level of evidence, rigorous type of study, And in these observational cohorts of people taking the drug outside of a trial context, they see that people with type 2 diabetes taking GLP-1 receptor agonists, which is a common class of drugs for type 2 diabetes that includes this new highly effective weight loss, UIGAV, they have a reduced risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And actually the estimates were were quite substantial. The trial-based estimate I don't remember the exact number, but it was like almost a, it was almost a fifty percent reduction in risk with a lot of uncertainty around that. so it's not and these trials were not designed to answer this question. This was a secondary analysis. Um, and so this is it's not yet the highest level of evidence that we can really hang our hats on, but I think it is still a pretty decent level of evidence to have that signal both from the trials and from the observational data from people taking the drug in the wild, so to speak. Um, So, you know, again, it's not quite time for us to hang our hats on it yet, but I think that it's a very, very intriguing signal and they are doing more research on this. And I think um, one of the things that makes this particularly powerful is that we currently don't have anything that we can do about Alzheimer's disease. It's a horrible disease, and we can't do anything about it. So, you know, to be able to find something, if it holds up, would be tremendous. It would be enormous, from my perspective, and I think from from many people's. Um, And so, you know, then the question arises, how does this work? Why do these drugs have this effect? So... um, I wanna emphasize first that this is not something that I have looked into very deeply. So I don't wanna present myself as like a cutting edge expert on this this field. Um, But there are a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, in in this particular study, these people had type two diabetes. Type two diabetes is not good for your brain. And these drugs are uh, some of the most effective drugs at treating type two diabetes. And as opposed to some other drugs like insulin, they tend to have positive side effects. Not to say that they have no negative side effects, but the side effects physiologically, metabolically, tend to be positive. They reduce cardiovascular disease risk, they reduce your body weight. So you you tend to have kind of like a general improvement in health, would be one way to to think about it. And so we know that diabetes increases the risk of neurodegenerative diseases, dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. And so a drug that walks that back would be expected to have some benefit. Um, So that's, that's the first thing. And to my knowledge, this has not been demonstrated in people who do not have type two diabetes. So that um, remains to be seen. There are trials that have been initiated on this. And I think, you know, given what we're seeing here, there's going to be a lot of interest and there are going to be, there are going to be studies on this. So we're going to know, we're going to know the answer to this, I think in the next five to 10 years. Um, and the second thing is that these drugs have, I think more direct neuroprotective effects. So this is something you see in animal models that these drugs protect neurons, uh, you know, brain cells against, uh, harm from all kinds of stuff. So they reduce the they reduce inflammation, they reduce uh, neuron death, and so um, that's another potential pathway is just kind of like turning down the knob on all the damage that accumulates in the brain during Alzheimer's disease. Um, but again, you know this is not a an area of expertise for me. It's not something I've looked into very deeply. So there may be, well, you know, better characterized, more specific mechanisms that I'm not aware of.
0: Sure, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Yeah, people are uh, thinking about those inflammatory pathways, but we're not sure, uh, I think. But like you say, the trials uh, are running and they're quite suggestive. I I was wondering what you thought of um, intermittent fasting or also, I guess, that also goes alongside uh, people who are very into um, high uh, intensity sort of training or these Kind of small, high burst exercises. Uh, do you have any opinion on that? Do you think it intersects
1: with some of these brain mechanisms? So, um, before I answer that, I want to I want to go back and add one thing to my last sure. answer, um, and that is that you know, if you if you look at the average person in an affluent country like the UK or the US. Um, people who are not developing type two diabetes are still on the spectrum toward developing type two diabetes. If you look at them metabolically, physiologically, if you measure their blood glucose control and their insulin secretion and sensitivity, by the time people get to middle or middle age or or older, they may not have type two diabetes, but they're still kind of on that metabolic spectrum of not being metabolically healthy, the average person, not everyone, but the average person. And so I think there's reason to hope that these drugs could be effective, even if that's the mechanism, even if metabolic improvement is the mechanism. I think there's reason to hope that even people without type two diabetes might benefit from these kinds of drugs in terms of Alzheimer's disease prevention. But again, that's speculative Yeah, I hadn't thought
0: about that. But I think that's true. If you look at, I guess, call it pre pre diabetes, like you say, there's a a, a sort of spectrum of metabolic health, call it metabolic syndrome, or whatever, there's a very large segment, which are pre pre or pre, which is actually more uh, better defined. And actually, I think there is uh, a segment which would I would call uh, pre fatty liver disease pre what's called NASH, which again, wouldn't be clinical, you wouldn't actually discover it most of the time. uh, But you're not that healthy. Also, seems to correlate, probably causal, with some inflammation stuff, with some dementia brain. Uh, and actually, we know GLP-1 seems to help those type of people as well. They often have diabetes as well. So you can see it. Oh, you have Nash fatty liver. You have diabetes. Your Nash is gone. Your diabetes is better controlled. You seem to need that. So I wouldn't be surprised. And like you say, I think what is the U.S. stat? Maybe forty to forty-five percent of uh americans are, are maybe obese or overweight to a or so. so you know you're talking about maybe up to half who are not metabolically brilliantly healthy and if that's having these effects then you're talking even in a general population uh not enriched for for that you might well see an effect and if you have an enriched uh population then you then you might see something uh i think yeah. that's quite interesting um that's right yeah intermittent um, fasting high intensity training unfortunately i've got the brain who doesn't really like that sort of uh, exercise <laughs> I kind of wish I did like I, yeah. get, I can do it for like sports and games but I know you know some friends who just like really love it or they go out jogging yeah. and they do this kind of meditation and they come back and they have all of these endorphins and it's the best thing ever and sadly for me I'm not uh, one of those people and I think this is the brain effect I really love it mm-hmm. to be and I look at them and I kind of do it and it's just like that's that's definitely not my subjective experience mm-hmm. I can push myself mm-hmm. through it but I really have to use that conscious part of my brain and go, all right, yeah. I really have to do it. But I'm not getting the joy that these other people are getting. And you can see it, they they look joyful. Yeah. And I was kind of I kind of hope maybe you can retrain that bit and there's reinforcement that you 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 can do it. And I can some people can, but this is the point about your environment and, and your genetics. I don't think I have that makeup. I have to try really hard. And I'm kind of looking for other things because sadly I, I'm never going to be that marathon uh, runner. I don't think mm-hmm. it doesn't do it for me
1: yeah that's um I think this is an interesting topic to to dig into so um, i'll I'll answer your original question and then and then we can transition to that one um, so I think the the best answer is we don't really know about intermittent fasting. Um, if you look at how If you look at the studies in humans, actually, let's let's start with the animal studies. So if you look at the animal studies, it has all these benefits, neuroprotective, it can extend lifespan under certain conditions, can protect animals metabolically. Um, The human evidence is really a lot less impressive right now. Um, And I think some of that has been confirmed in humans and the really big benefits that we're hoping for, we really don't have evidence for yet. And that's not, you know, I don't want to suggest that, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So I don't want to suggest that it is not going to deliver those benefits, but we don't have evidence for it right now. If you compare intermittent fasting, you know, there, there are many different ways to do intermittent fasting, but if you look at like time restricted eating or um, eating nothing or very little on certain days days of the week those are different variants of intermittent fasting you and then you compare those in randomized controlled trials versus regular old old fashioned calorie restriction they end up looking pretty similar so i think and and i'm talking both in terms of body weight excuse me and in terms of metabolic improvement which is to say that they are both helpful but not, neither one is a you know home run so i think Is it beneficial? Yes, I think we can say that it's probably beneficial. Is it this you know shiny new method that's clearly superior to other things that people have been doing for a long time? I don't think we have evidence for that in humans. That said, I think generally energy balance, particularly energy intake, I do think that that is an important, very important influence on health, and probably indirectly on, on lifespan. So whether you're controlling your energy intake via, um, you know, old fashioned portion control or low carb diet or low fat diet or intermittent fasting, whatever it takes for you to maintain a reasonably lean body, I think is, is going to benefit your health. Um, so then, then we get to this issue of motivation for exercise and I, I, I'm glad that you brought this observation up because I think it really illustrates one way in which people are just wired differently. And you might be right. Maybe there are some ways we can train ourselves to some degree, but I mean, you obviously were born a little bit different than the people that you were describing who, you know, are joyful with this high intensity exercise. Like, they didn't have to train themselves to enjoy that right like they just naturally really enjoyed it and you don't and I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle but probably closer to where you are and there are a lot of people who just despise exercise it makes them feel terrible and they they hate it you know I know people like this and I'm glad that I was not born like that but um And then on the other hand, there are people who are almost like addicted to it. They like need it and love it. And I think, I don't think that's very common, but there are certainly people like that, especially if you're already enriching for, you know, high functioning people in your social group, you know, highly motivated people, you're going to get more of those types of people. But I think in the general population, that's not common. And, you know, thinking about I think this gets at a a kind of broader truth about the human brain and human evolution, which is that we have these inborn motivations toward different stimuli and different behaviors that we inherited from our very distant ancestors that affect our lives today. So, you know, if you think about, let's talk about for the average person, we're talking about the average person, not outliers. If you were to put a delicious food in front of them, like, ice cream or pizza or something like that, or whatever it is that, you know, really like is, is, is their food that they have a hard time controlling their intake around it. They're going to have to exert willpower to not eat that food, right? Like if, if, if they're not exerting any kind of willpower, they're going to be eating that food. But for exercise, it's the opposite. You have to exert willpower to exercise, right? The default is not doing the exercise. If you're not exerting any kind of willpower, you're not going to be going out the door with your jogging shoes on. So we have this motivational system that is reversed, at least on average, for those two types of stimuli. And I think that relates back to our ancestral environment. If you look at hunter gatherers, they, Exercise was just part of life. They didn't have a choice of whether to exercise or not. They were exercising every day quite a bit. Not, not necessarily, they weren't marathon runners. You know, it wasn't extreme, but they were getting a substantial amount of exercise every day. And the incentive was for them to minimize it. Like the less exercise you can do to get away with getting everything done that you had to get done, the better off you were. Lower risk of injury, lower energy expended. And it's not like you were going to be a couch potato. There's just no way to live that life at that time. And so the incentive evolutionarily was to limit your energy expenditure if you could. And then, um, and then for food, it's the opposite. You have to have that motivational drive to acquire food or else you're just going to starve, right? Because in a hunter-gatherer context, you have to work to get food it was much more effortful and time intensive to obtain food than it is today so anyone who didn't have that motivational drive was weeded out a long time ago so um i think it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary context why we have these different inborn motivational drives toward different stimuli toward different behaviors and unfortunately today you know, our environment has changed so much. I mean, you know, there's a lot of good things about it. I'm not like complaining necessarily, but I think in certain ways, the incentives have been flipped. And so now we should be motivated to go on that jog. It should take, you know, motivation for us not to go on that jog. And it should take motivation for us to force ourselves to eat the ice cream. But that's not how our brains are wired. We have the brains that we inherited from our distant ancestors. It's the environment that has shifted.
0: Yeah, I could see that. We didn't become more sedentary until, in evolutionary terms, no, just yesterday, really. Obviously, it's been a little bit longer than that, but but not. Um, uh, slightly uh, left field or askance, I wonder what you have any thoughts on microbiome or uh, gut flora. I guess my own view is that we really don't know very much at all. So I I don't think we can actually say uh, that much about it but I do think there's sometimes uh, quite strong claims not in my view supported by much of the evidence but I would be interested in if you, if you had any thoughts about it. I think it's a really good area for research and we should do way more but I can't really piece together what actually the science is saying apart from the fact that it seems to be compl- uh, complicated uh, and very individual.
1: Yeah so I think it depends on what type of outcome we're looking at. I think there's pretty good evidence that the microbiome is involved in immune system development. And, you know, this is a very obvious hypothesis. Like you kind of would expect your microbiome to be involved in how the immune system develops. And so I think that's been pretty well supported. Microbiome, but just the, the microbial environment in general, like what diseases you're exposed to, for example. So you see like. Just to give you an example, um, in experimental animals, if you expose them to diseases in childhood, they have a lower risk of developing autoimmunity as, as adults. So there's like a training of the immune system that happens based on the microbes that it's exposed to. And so I think it's pretty well, um, I would say it's, it's fairly well established that the microbiome as well as the the broader immune environment affects how your immune system develops. And that potentially has, um, pretty substantial implications for immune related conditions and function later in life. So I think, I think that aspect just very broadly is, is pretty well supported and very plausible. But when we start getting into obesity, I think it starts getting a lot more murky. And in fact, um. There was a, the, the kind of seminal paper in this area um, showed that you could actually transfer susceptibility to fat gain using fecal microbiota transplants. So there was something, the paper was suggesting that there was something carried by the fecal microbiome that was carrying some body fatness signal. And, but if you really dig into the study, it's not very convincing. It's a small number of animals. Reanalysis suggests that the effect size is really tiny. I mean, this is not explaining obesity. At most, it's like explaining a small fraction of it. And I would say it's not even convincing that it's it's explaining any of it. So I think, and I think this has characterized the connection between microbiome and body weight. since the day this research started so you see studies they're now human fecal microbiome transplants and you see studies where they have um, a pre-registered research plan so they have stated publicly what they're planning to do this is a, a rigorous thing you do to create accountability for yourself and you're supposed to stick to the plan so they publish this plan that says hey, we're going to do a microbiome transplant in humans. And, and the main thing we're interested in is changes in body weight at eight weeks at 12 weeks. And then you look at the paper that comes out of it. And the body weight data is like in the supplementary materials buried under mountains of other data, and it's null, which means no effect. So um, this is kind of like how this, this field has gone, um, in my opinion. And So I think the evidence right now is, is really quite slim that the microbiome has much to do with obesity in humans. But that said, you know, we're talking about an extremely complex system, right? We're talking about an entire, very complicated ecosystem in your gut interacting with your your body in various ways. So to say, you know, I also can't say that it doesn't matter because maybe it's just so complicated that we just haven't figured out. The way in which it matters, sure,
0: and there could be second or third order effects via the immune system right which would you know either way I think that that makes a lot of sense, so yes for immune system jury definitely out on overall uh fat homeostasis or or weight balance great um maybe pivot to a couple of other types of questions um I've never made my own cider. what am I missing <laughs>
1: well um you are missing a delicious beverage that is inexpensive to make
0: (laughs) so uh, a natural ferment's good alcohol's kind of bad or is it just a nice drink to make and you grow quite a lot of your own food do you think people should grow more of their own food is that a kind of supply chain uh like nutritious simple food chain or is it just kind of a fun thing to do
1: I think it's more the latter. I, I wouldn't say people should grow more of their own food, but I'd say if they enjoy it, it might not be a bad thing to do. I mean, the thing is, um, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm really into growing food. So that's, that's probably my main hobby. I put a lot of time and energy into it. I really enjoy it. And, but, you know, if somebody doesn't enjoy it or they find it too time consuming or whatever, I wouldn't suggest that they do it. I think um, the food you can get in the grocery store if you're selecting um, intelligently is perfectly healthy. So it's not a matter of like, you know, if you don't grow your own food, you're making yourself <laughs> sick with poison from the grocery store. That's, that's, that's not sure. my perspective. But do you put um, grow your
0: own apples to make cider or you, you're I mean, you need a lot of apples, but maybe you have an orchard. Yeah.
1: Unfor- so unfortunately, my, um, so I do have two apple trees, but due to, um, I, d- I don't have the amount of land that I would like right now. And the place where they're planted is not great for being productive. So um, I don't make more, I don't make enough to, to press. So um, I just make enough for a personal, personal consumption, but I do enjoy that. Yeah, for for pressing, the general rule of thumb is you need about a hundred pounds per five gallons. Wow. Okay,
0: that's a lot. <laughs> helpful
1: that is for you guys. Uh, let me try to. Let's see.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, um, pears which make perry and a- apples here in the UK and England is it's quite a there's quite a big tradition. We we qu- really quite like it, but actually I'm trying to wean myself off uh, drinking uh, uh, much. Uh, alcohol now i'm getting a little bit older and stuff as well but yeah no that's quite a that's quite a lot um i also wonder uh, what did you learn with your work at uh, givewell what do you think are maybe underrated or overrated ideas which come from effective altruism or how we think we might best make decisions or live our life
1: i mean to me the big thing that givewell has done that Is really valuable and has broader lessons is simply to apply quantification and basic tools of rationality to a scenario that didn't have those things before or didn't have them to the same degree. And I mean, looking back, what GiveWell did is just so obvious and basic, right? I mean, they asked the question which charities are doing the most good per dollar? Isn't that such a basic question? And nobody was really answering that question at the time. Nobody was doing it really effectively and transparently. And, um, you know, and I think because part of the, part of the problem is that when people think about how do you answer this question, they might think about things like how, well, how much overhead does the charity have? So how much of the money goes to intervention rather than paying salaries and keeping the lights on. But that's actually not a very informative way to determine whether a charity is, is cost-effective or not, because the main determinant of whether a charity is cost-effective is how good the intervention is. So you can have interventions that are saving orders of magnitude, different numbers of lives per dollar And while the overhead just isn't necessarily that impactful and overhead can be justified as well in some cases. So, you know, people think about overhead and they think like, well, maybe these people are just putting it in their pockets, but in reality, you know, you have to pay competent staff. You have to, you know, have the right equipment, the right networks. You have to maintain them properly if you want to be an effective charity. So the question is, what are you getting for that overhead? And so, these are all things that GiveWell digs into, and then makes formalized models that yield um, cost-effectiveness estimates that we can that allow us to, on an apples-to-apples basis, compare different different charities and different cause areas. And so, to me, just like it, again, in retrospect, it's a very basic concept that um, that give well implemented, but I think it's one that we can learn from in other parts of our lives. So, you know, how do you step out of the situation and really think about what's the best cost benefit ratio here? How do we put a number on it? I think those are good questions to ask in life. And I want to, I want to say that this general idea of Trying to um, be more rigorous in our thinking and try to apply quantification to things that might not normally benefit from—that is—was um, a major inspiration for Red Pen Reviews, which is this organization that I'm the, the director of that publishes expert book reviews of of uh, popular nutrition books. So, you know, a book review is typically. If you, if you read a, a review of a popular nutrition book, it's typically a very subjective thing that isn't quantified in any way. So what we did was we created this semi-quantitative review method that um, is standardized. So this, the same method is applied to every book. It um, yields numbers for scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and helpfulness that are um, easily interpretable and can be compared between different books on an apples-to-apples basis. And so um, I think this general principle is widely applicable and um, can really help us increase our efficiency and and, um, understanding in life.
0: Yeah, so I think this key concept, I guess it's kind of uh, critical rationalists, or I think the nickname might be crit rats. Uh, this kind of uh, this kind of thinking on expected value, yeah, very useful for this type of decision making, and and maybe across more areas of our life uh, than than we've seen. Uh, and I guess it's an extension, philosophically, of some utilitarian or consequentialist uh, thinking. Uh, but do you think? Where do you think you would draw the limit? If you would draw the limit um, everywhere, so uh, you can see applied to health or charity. Um, you know, you can do a cost for for life saves or quality of of life adjusted. You can do it with how rational books or logic are, are things thinking. Um, th- can it go into things like emotion um, and, and other things? Like, do you draw a lines uh, somewhere within it where you kind of go, well, I don't think that sort of applies. So that, or or do you think actually it's just we haven't drawn the line. La- we could draw the line much further along than uh, than we have in general.
1: Um. I think that many things can be quantified, even things that we view as subjective, and there may be value in doing that in certain situations. So, you know, just one thing that pops to mind is if you want to study depression, you have to have some way to measure it, right? And so we have these semi-quantitative questionnaires that measure different aspects of depression, and then you can say, study a drug or study exercise or study whatever the intervention is, its impact on depression, which is, you know, a measure type of measure of subjective well-being. So, and, you know, subjective well-being itself, that's another thing that is quantified that I think most people would consider to be an important variable, um, but entirely subjective, right? And so I think, you know, things like emotions and and well-being and other subjective things can be quantified, and there are often benefits to doing that um, so I don't know i i kind of i guess I would say I don't see any downside to it, but I don't know if there's is there a specific scenario you have in mind of of where it might be harmful
0: uh no, I, I well, I guess you've got some. So you take very extreme examples from philosophy. Uh, that you know, you've got actually. There's a philosophical thing um, which I think is called uh, the dismal conclusion or something like that, where you end up where everyone is really bad and they get a little bit less bad, but that's not a life you 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 would want to live. So there are some extremes like that, but they probably don't apply to this bunch of things that we're talking about. So this is why I don't know whether the extreme thinking. Uh, is necessarily that useful but uh, I was just interested if you had thoughts on that and I kind of agree with you so one thing I'm very interested in is uh, culture but actually maybe more narrowly defined like organizational culture or corporate culture or, or things like that and I actually think you can measure and manage it to a much stronger degree than people think and actually we would all be better for it rather than be ad hoc and you can you know get things in advance if you don't want your culture to be x or you're worried about y if you measure and manage it beforehand or, or put places in there but you, it's very hard to do that unless you are trying to do that yes you can do it with leadership things and slogans and things which has been the traditional way of doing it but actually what what we've learned like in depression is you can score certain aspects and you can do it and you can that and you can mm-hmm. get uh, uh you can get it um i don't know i may be a little bit suspicious on something where you're not thinking about it uh or where there's a lot of complexity to it so you know something like call it a big blob like love i, I think some of that is a complex enough that you might be able to get there but a lot of people won't actually be talking about the same thing so mm. so maybe it is there but it's quite complex uh because of it and there's probably some things uh some things within that maybe if you have time then uh we could play a very short round or a couple of rounds of kind of overrated, underrated? I don't know if you've ever ever done <laughs> this, uh, but I give a couple of things and you say whether they're kind of overrated or, or underrated. I, and actually, I'll stretch away from food and go actually for some effective altruist type uh, things. I'm just kind of interested in, on what you think. Uh, you can pass or you can say that and it's sort of more quick fire. And we can go that. Uh, but what do you think? Overrated or underrated um, animal welfare?
1: I'm going to say underrated on that just based on the sheer numbers and the fact that most people don't care that much.
0: Yeah. And I think if we cared more about where our food comes from and all of that, it would, it would probably help with, with some of this. Okay. Um, rogue artificial intelligence, this kind of rogue AI risk.
1: Underrated. I think that, I mean, it depends on who's doing the rating, but I think by yep. the general population, this is just not even on people's radar, but I'm not an expert on this, but it seems to me in the long term, this is actually a really very substantial risk.
0: Sure. Um, Climate change.
1: Oh, man, I guess I don't know whether I'd call it underrated or overrated, probably underrated. Yeah, just I'd say probably underrated based on if we're focusing on like what action governments are actually taking, I would say underrated.
0: Uh, nuclear war It's not a really good time to ask this because if I'd asked it like (laughs) three months ago we got over that because I I think maybe now people are uh, thinking differently about it but maybe in general
1: I think underrated yeah again it's just kind of this thing that people don't think about that much but I mean I and again I'm not an expert but I've seen credible estimates that your kind of like baseline risk under normal times is like half a percent a year and that really adds up and it's probably quite a bit higher than that right now so to me, you know, I don't think the average person really has uh, really thinks about it much or has an accurate perception of what the probability is or how that adds up over time. Um. So, yeah, I think that is underrated, I would say.
0: Sure. Um, giving away more of your wealth.
1: I think that's underrated yeah i mean certainly from a moral standpoint it would be better for people to give away more wealth to to good causes so yeah
0: yeah i guess that would be a give well concept as well um (laughs) and last one on this um diversity maybe i'm particularly thinking about diversity of thinking or neuro or cognitive diversity
1: hmm I don't really know whether that's underrated or overrated. Yeah, I don't really have a perception of how people rate that. I'm not really sure how people rate that. Sure, maybe correctly rated. I I think it's underrated. I
0: think there's a little, uh, so this is completely speculative on on my part as well, Uh, but a little bit about how we might have come to how we perceive food and exercise today. I do wonder, we've preserved like through the ice ages Uh, partly some cognitive diversity because it's really useful for the group. It's really useful. You you need social cohesion in a group like to hunt the mammoth, right? So that's obviously useful and we have good social communication. But you need some members of the group to point out, you know what? We might have hunted the mammoth in direction X all of this time, but look at the evidence. It's no longer direction X, it's it's now direction Y. And you Mm -hmm. need this kind of cognitive diversity or something else. And I think that's why it's been quite well preserved. Now, you probably can't have that as 100% of your group because you never agree on anything then, right? And you can't move forward and actually hunt the mammoth. But if you only ever follow the social pattern of the herd, what you end up is it's quite good for some time. And then when the mammoth changes or some pattern changes and you're not really looking at the evidence, which would be a crit rat thing, then the whole thing crumbles. And I, so I think there's actually a case for why evolution has, um, has actually preserved cognitive diversity and why maybe potentially we're seeing uh, a little bit uh, more of it because they were actually give very important emergent properties uh, to the group for survival and, and long-term survival in this. But it's purely speculative, but just thinking about the um, evolutionary psychology basis for that. And in any event, um, maybe last uh, couple of questions. Oh, I was going to ask about bicycles, actually. Uh, because when <laughs> I was in uh, Seattle a few years ago, I didn't think it was that bicycle friendly a uh, place, but I was kind of Seattle City, I don't know where exactly on uh, uh, around the region you are. But I think you mentioned that you cycle quite a, quite a lot uh, everywhere. Um, is it that cycling friendly? Would you, would you advise? I mean, it's probably quite good to getting around and mixing this kind of exercise, not quite hunter gathering, but if you're commuting by bicycles anyway, that's probably a good way to get in some, some exercise.
1: Yeah, so I you know, I don't have a very good sense of, how, uh, of of what the expectation of someone from the U.K. would be in terms of what is a cyclable city and what's not. Um, but I will say that Seattle is very cyclable for a, an American city. right? Um, so most places you want to go, you can find bike lanes of some type. They're not necessarily protected bike lanes, but there will be some kind of paint. Uh, creating a separate lane and then um, usually depending on the route you'll end up going also through some quiet neighborhood streets that are not um, that don't have protected lanes and I would say also another really important point is that people here um, are nice to cyclists the drivers okay typically so you feel safe I mean, you know, cycling has some amount of risk associated with it. So I don't want to say completely safe, but, um, there's a lot of places in the U S where people really resent cyclists, where drivers really resent cyclists and they will not accommodate you. Maybe they'll even honk at you or yell at you. They think you're, you know, the road is theirs. It's not for bikes. And, um, that's not the environment here in Seattle. Very occasionally you'll get someone who's like that, but typically people really go out of their way to accommodate cyclists here. So I think that's a big part of it. So I feel comfortable, not to say that there's no risk, you know, I have friends who have been in accidents, some of them serious. Um I've been in an accident. But um I think if you're comparing to other American cities, it's it's clearly better than most. Um, that That's said, good <laughs> it's very hilly. Oh, so you better have some strong thighs if you want to make <laughs> it up the hills.
0: Electric battery for me then. Well, I, I, I think about it because I, I tried to do the expected value calculation on uh, cycling and I, and I couldn't really do it because you've got increased accident risk, but you've also got probably, um, health benefits as well. And then you've got systemic, uh, you know, environmental, uh, benefits across the whole, Uh, system which would be really great and that's yeah that we don't think of things like air pollution but much but and i guess electric cars could do it as well but if you electrify or you cycle your air pollution is really good and air pollution has these secondary impacts on both lung function and also maybe even brain function and and all of that but yeah i I think another
1: thing to consider is the the well-being and mental health impacts Mm. so um maybe difficult to quantify but you know for me being on a bike that one of the, the, the most wonderful things about it you're outside of course and that has benefits you're exercising but one of the best things about it is when you're on a bike not much stops you like traffic jams don't stop you when you're in a car you're at the mercy of whoever's in front of you whereas when you're on a bike it's mostly just how fast can you pedal and so there's a certain like degree of control that you have that I think is, is liberating relative to sitting in traffic jams in a car or on a bus. Um, so to me, there are major benefits for, for well-being that I think um, are associated with cycling. And I think a lot of other cycle commuters would, would say that as well.
0: Yeah, no, I can see that. So I'm wired, although I'm not very good at the exercise thing. Uh, I'm quite patient. So I actually, I don't drive. But I can sit in, in traffic and road rage never hits me <laughs> or anything like that so I think that's my my flip side on that but I actually tend to prefer to cycle here in the here in London at least uh, we've got um uh, these kind of bikes which you can hire really cheaply uh, to get around mm-hmm. as part of our public transport and so they've taken up so I use a lot of those okay so final uh, couple of questions. So one would be on, uh, I guess, diet advice or how to think about that overall. And maybe if you have any overall advice for people, I, I get the impression that you think it's quite individual. I know actually you run a kind of diet uh, program uh, through your website that people can uh, look up uh, as well, which has kind of behavioral elements and stress and food and other elements. But if, if you're thinking um, overall advice about how to eat, Uh, better and I know we've sort of mentioned this it's kind of better to stay lean rather than it's easier to prevent obesity than it is when you're already obese and you've got a higher kind of homeostasis and and get back but I guess you might you know a lot of people have already fallen into that camp Uh, but yeah general any general advice about how we should think about our food and behaviors and what you'd say to the general person listening about how to think about uh, eating healthy
1: yeah I mean I think for the average person who, you know, is likely to gain weight over the course of their lives and, you know, uh, lose metabolic health over the course of their lives. Um, So this is very general ideas, not, you know, targeted to specific individuals with specific needs, but I think right now the best you can do is eat a whole food omnivorous diet and, um, try to keep calorie density lower control your food environment where you're not exposing yourself to food cues all the time it's not easy to grab caloric foods and beverages um and um be physically active on most days if not every day if you're if you're able to do that and manage your your stress and sleep. I think just kind of covering the basics um, and trying to stay relatively lean, I think that's about the best we can do right now. Great. And any last
0: final overall thoughts for people about how they might want to live their life or anything? I kind of, it's interesting that you've gone, you know, down an effective altruist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, give well, sort of get a well sort of route. Uh, you know, it's interesting you do, you know, it's a hobby, but you, obviously grow your own food and things like that. Any thoughts about how people might want to do research or just how to be a fulfilled person?
1: Mm, I think the only, only parting thought I'll leave this with is I think that it can be easy for a certain type of person to become obsessed with food and for the cost benefit of that to end up unfavorable. them. So I think it's absolutely rational and reasonable and not pathological to control your diet and limit the intake of certain foods and prioritize intake of other foods. But I think there's a certain type of person who can take it too far to the point where they're fearing the impact of foods and it's starting to have a negative impact on their well-being and mental health. So I would just say, watch out for that and think about You know, if your ultimate goal is to live well, maybe think about how, you know, maybe think about how you're um, engaging with your diet and whether it's supporting that goal, whether the current intensity level is appropriate, or maybe you want to back off or increase it. I think just something to think about. Great. Well, that seems like great advice to
0: me. Um, So thank you very much for joining me in this conversation thanks Ben if you appreciate the show please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast